Hello, this is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those of you that are new, I just briefly want to mention that I am here seeking to speak as the oracles of God, as it says in 2 Peter chapter 4, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And so I am seeking to allow the Spirit of God to speak out of me what he would be saying to you as an individual who in God's foreknowledge has come to listen to this message and to all others and the corporate body of Christ around the world. And in that endeavor to seek to let the Spirit of God speak through me and guide me and teach me also in the very moment as I am speaking to you, I seek a particular passage, a chapter from the Word of God almost every day of the week, which often I receive through the casting of lots before God. And then I meditate on that chapter and make brief notes, which takes about a half an hour. And immediately after, I speak, trusting God to speak through me. Today, I received 2 Corinthians chapter 12, so in a few moments, I will read that chapter before sharing. But I also want to point out that I do not always preach every day, and so yesterday, actually, I received Galatians chapter 3, which I'd only received a couple of days before that, particularly on October the 8th, which was Wednesday. So I kind of tended to ignore that chapter, even though I read it again and meditated on it. And then amazingly, on Saturday, I received Galatians chapter 11. But on October the 13th, Monday, I did receive Galatians chapter 3, but then decided to go for some other passages of Scripture. I also want to mention that today, being Tuesday, October the 14th is the last day, I believe, of the Feast of Sukkot. And so I do believe that God will speak concerning that feast, which I did speak on when I gave a message on Galatians chapter 3 on last Wednesday on October the 8th, towards the end of the message on that day. But first of all, I will read the passage that I received today, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, which has an insight into how God sanctions leadership. Beginning in verse 1, it is not expedient for me doubtless to glory, and I might mention to those that are new that this is the Apostle Paul in this particular chapter writing. So I'll repeat again, it is not expedient for me doubtless to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such a one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. 
Of such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. I am become a fool in glory. Ye have compelled me. For I ought to have been commended of you, for nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it, wherein ye were inferior to other churches, except it be that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you. For I seek not yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. But be it so. I did not burden you, nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you with guile. Did I make a gain of you by any of them whom I sent unto you? I desired Titus, and with him I sent a brother. Did Titus make a gain of you? Walked we not in the same spirit? Walked we not in the same steps? Again, think ye that we excuse ourselves unto you? We speak before God and Christ. But we do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying. For I fear lest when I come I shall not find you such as I would, and that I shall be found unto you such as ye would not, lest there be debates, envings, wraths, strifes, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, tumults, and lest when I come again my God will humble me among you, and that I shall bewail many which have sinned already, and had not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. Thus ends the reading of first, pardon me, Second Corinthians chapter 12. Excuse me, I'm going to take a brief drink of water. Okay. In 2 Corinthians chapters 12, there is two things that stand out. One is the evidence of genuine spiritual leadership, such as apostles. The understanding 
of those that are raised up by the Spirit of God to be placed in the corporate body of Christ, which is to come forth and be his clean and pure spotless bride. As it says in another scripture in the New Testament, he gave some apostles, that's in Ephesians, and some prophets and some pastors and some teachers, and so on and so forth. Pastors are not pastors because they go to a Bible school and get a degree because they've taken an intellectual discipline in this study of the Word of God. The moment professionalism and academia becomes the main criteria for sanctioning someone to be a pastor or any other kind of leadership, we have leadership that is instigated of man rather than of God. And in these last days, God will shake all things that are shakable in the body of Christ as well, for judgment must first begin at the house of God before that judgment spreads out into the nations of the world to shake all things that are shakable, that what is unshakable might remain, which will be the kingdom of God that has no corruption in it and therefore is indestructible. And so one of the things that stands out in this passage is the qualification of leadership that is raised up by the Spirit of God and not of man. And the other thing that stands out in this passage is the danger in leadership even that is raised up of God and in all of us to fall in to the deception of pride where we allow people to put us on a pedestal. But how those that embrace and seek only the glory of God that are true leadership allow God to put them in the situations to undo any such possibilities. Now this passage fits in with the overlying theme of this time of the year with the Feast of Tabernacles. Because in the Feast of Tabernacles, which has not been fully fulfilled in its symbolism, that represents God tabernacling among his people in its overall arching theme. The Feast of Tabernacles always happens at the time of Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving was yesterday. And today, I believe, and I'm pretty certain, is the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, which goes for seven days. Now, one of the keys to God tabernacling among his people is that we facilitate God being head over his corporate body. And to facilitate God being head over his corporate body requires that we repent of control and of setting up our own hierarchies of control and allow God to raise up the leadership that is sanctioned of him. And the other thing that is so important in the tabernacling of God among his people 
allowing him to come and be fully head and fully inhabit his corporate body. As it says in another passage in the New Testament, that we are built together as living stones for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. That God would find his habitation in our midst is humility, which is brought up very strongly in this 2 Corinthians chapter 12 in relation to Paul being humbled, that people would not look up to him too highly and that he would not be brought into any danger of the deception of pride by the abundance of visitations and revelations and translations into heaven itself that God gave him. And so I want to knit together this passage of 2 Corinthians chapter 12 with Galatians chapter 3 because there must be significance in the fact that I received Galatians chapter 3 almost twice in a row. It was only on Wednesday I received Galatians chapter 3 and then again yesterday on Monday. And yet yesterday I received also, Galatians chapter, no, two days ago, Galatians chapter 2, or two times ago when I made notes, Galatians chapter 2, on Saturday. So first of all, I want to continue with what I've been sharing on Second Corinthians 12, and just point out what briefly is summed up in the notes I made from the first half of this 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 1 to 10. And I wrote this, when we receive the powerful visitations from God, such as being caught up to heaven and visions and revelations, there is the danger of people looking up too highly to us and of pride entering into our soul. When this is so, God can humble us through physical infirmity, which could have been, in Paul's case, an epileptic attack brought on by demonic attack. We are not to look at these things that are allowed of God as to our detriment, but rather as an opportunity to become strong with the power and glory of God. Genuine leadership actually takes pleasure in trials of all types and sees every attack, whether it be through a brother or a sister, or through circumstances or persecution from the ungodly or whatever it is, as an opportunity to come into a closer relationship with God and a greater enlargement of being in our soul to be filled with the love of God and comprehend his love. In the last section of 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 11 to 21, I wrote this. The confirmation of leadership raised up of God, such as apostles, is that they display patience towards the body of Christ and that this is accompanied by signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. That's if they are apostles. The evidence of such leadership is in a lifestyle of godliness that does not seek gain from others, either whether it be in self-glory or material things. 
And the other evidence is that there is great humility and tears of genuine burden for God's people to have victory over sin. Tears that come out of a genuine love that is displayed in their lives and the way they live before God's people and pour their lives out in compassion and love for them. In the case of the Apostle Paul, he could have received support financially through them, but chose rather to occupy himself with his trade and yet at the same time pour himself into much ministry to this body of believers, the Corinthians. Those all listening to me, I want to emphasize that we are living in the last days. And it is very clear that God's purpose is to bring forth his bride, a corporate bride for himself. The question then is, are we going to be those that fall into a relationship that is not a relationship with God, but a relationship of adultery with the world? So that instead of being the pure corporate bride of Christ, we become a whore, a prostitute that misrepresents the glory of God to the world. In Galatians chapter 3, I believe there's important things to point out, even though this message was given recently in which towards the end of the last message I emphasized its significance in relation to the Feast of Tabernacles. And so we will now turn to Galatians chapter 3 and trust the Holy Spirit to just speak what he would be saying through that passage of Scripture. Galatians chapter Three. I'm not going to read it this time. It was read before. But we see one thing that happened to the Galatians. They were deceived out of walking or entering in to a genuine, deep love relationship with God. And so the first verse in Galatians chapter 3 says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you. It was evidence that they had a focus upon the atoning work of Jesus Christ to the point that they may have even made an image in their church of Christ crucified on the cross. Or before their spiritual eyes they were always seeing the great condescension of God's love and humility to be poured out in the atoning work of himself in the full expression of himself into this created realm in his son. This word son means expression. And Jesus Christ, the son of God, is indeed the full expression of God in government as the father, the originator that sees the end from the beginning. And in contrast to this focus on God's great condescension and humility and in love poured out for us to taste death for every man 
and conquer it so that we, through repentance, could receive forgiveness of sins and be brought into a love relationship with him. Paul emphasizes that they have been bewitched, which means they have been fixated with something that appears to be appealing, but is not what it really appears to be in their sight. It is deceptive. And the greatest deception of all is the deception of pride, which comes in many forms. Pride is not just being conscious of being exalted exalted in ourselves above others. It is even a subconscious condition of the heart. The Word of God says in Jeremiah that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. And the secret to conquering pride in the context of this verse emphasizing in Jeremiah who can even know the depth of deception in the heart is the emphasis on trusting in God. And it describes it being like a tree that's planted by living waters that prospers and flourishes in contrast to a tree whose roots have withered because it has not reached into the depths to draw from those living waters. Paul the Apostle said that Christ should dwell in our hearts by faith, that therein we should be rooted and grounded in love. And then he had talked about this love being of such a quality that we would be knit together with all saints to the degree that there would be such a unity that would be, we would be able to comprehend the height and the depth and the breadth of the love of God, and that this unity of comprehension in God that brings a unity with one another would cause us to be filled with all the fullness of God. And so he goes on and he says that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. And then he goes on to say, in the context of that verse, so that when we pray together, he would answer exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. And the reason that power works in us is because we have allowed that rooting of love to be tapped into, that rooting by faith to tap into the love that brings a genuine unity among one another out of first a deep unity in our relationship with God. So that the glory of what is in heaven comes down to earth because we come into a receptivity and conformity out of that receptivity to the very being of God and to the very state of all that is in total harmony and love in heaven. So the more we are conformed in our love to God and to one another, the more we are also in conformity to the way it is in heaven that therein allows the presence and glory of God to descend in our midst with his presence and glory and power so that we become the tabernacle of God so that when he tabernacles in our midst 
and fills us with his presence corporately, there is authority in our prayers in agreement so that if we ask anything in his name, he will do it because we pray not according to our own selfish, lustful desires, but we have been so conformed in a love relationship to God that the desires of God and his glory are our desires and our life is dead and hid with Christ in God because we loathe self-glory. We loathe those things that take away from the glory of God. In this passage of Scripture, the Galatians were bewitched. They fell into a focus on something, in this case, that was circumcision, outward performance that they thought would make them more acceptable to God, that was induced upon them by certain people that came along and emphasized the importance of focus upon the ceremonial laws as well as the Ten Commandments. And so they began to put their focus on the Ten Commandments rather than on their relationship with God in the keeping of those Ten Commandments. So that therein, that focus became prominent and therefore deceived them into a focus upon themselves. So that it became merely an outward performance instead of a relationship of intimacy with God. The law became, and its ceremonial laws as well, a focus that was idolatrous, that God never intended. He did not intend the Ten Commandments would become a focus that would eclipse our focus on relationship with who God is in his very being of love. And so Paul continues to emphasize in Galatians chapter 3, the consistency from the time of Adam and Eve until now that the gospel was always there and it was always, even during the Ten Commandments, to be a relationship of intimacy with God that came out of a response of faith. And so I want to explain what brings genuine and births genuine faith, that therein births a relationship of reciprocation of God's being of love that ever enlarges and grows and conquers the deception of hardness in the human heart to fall into a state of pride and of control over our own lives and that of others that also happens corporately so that one has instead of a corporate bride that is pure and spotless for the coming of Christ, what could be called a whore. It warns against this in the book of Revelations in the last days. In fact, I will turn to that passage briefly in the book of Revelations chapter 16, I believe, and just point that out to you right now. Revelations chapter 16, I believe it is. And I'm going to go to that passage and just go to approximately where I believe it is. And I'm going to read what it says here. And this is 
a time of great deception that is described. And so I will read the context of this verse because it is describing the deception in the last days. And so I'll start at verse 12 in Revelation 16. And it says, And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, for they are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. And then here's the verse that I want you to note. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame lest he walk naked and they see his shame. So, the Lord is going to return for his corporate bride, but there are, there are those that will fail to be of the ones that have the extra oil. There's the ten wise and the ten foolish virgins and the foolish virgins were deceived to fall out of a relationship where their hearts were burning a flame with a flame in the midst of great deception. They maintained a relationship that was exuding with good deeds out of a love relationship with God. They had bought the extra oil. And the deception of the hardness of the last days could not cause their lamps to go out. They became the corporate bride. I had the experience a little earlier this week of being in the superstore and shopping and running into a gentleman that I didn't know that well, but I'd met in a meeting quite a long time ago that was a meeting that was specifically for praying for Israel. And he began to share with me about how he was concerned that his wife was going to meetings in church and more involved in certain meetings, but she seemed to be entering into a kind of hardness in her heart where there wasn't that liberty, where there wasn't that relationship that he sensed that she should have with God or with him. And he was very concerned about him. And so I told him, something that really spoke volumes to me. I told him it's so easy to fall into a state of religious duty and how easy it is for it to happen to all of us. And I mentioned something that spoke to me where a particular lady in a meeting I was attending came up to me and told me the story of how she was deciding to divorce her husband and was getting ready to make plans to divorce him because she was so disgusted with him because he probably didn't seem to be very godly to her or whatever, but I perceive that was probably part of the picture. And she was challenged by the Spirit of God to go up to him and kept resisting it, to go up to him and to wash his feet with a towel in humility. She finally got the courage to do it, and when she was about to do it, he 
said, no, 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 don't do it. But she still did it. And she washed his feet with a towel. And tears burst out of his eyes. And tears burst out of her eyes. And the hardness in her heart was broken. And the hardness in his heart was broken. Because she stepped out in faith and allowed the hardness that was there to be broken by an act of humility, an act of choice to love her husband. God is calling us as his people in this hour when we recognize that we're entering in to merely doing things out of religious duty and we sense there is a hardness and we can be very busy like the church of Ephesus filled with activity. I can read about the church of Ephesus to you too in Revelations chapter 2. So I'll go there briefly right now to Revelations chapter 2 and just describe what it says here. Unto the angel of, this is 2 verse 1, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write these things, saith he, that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars and hast borne and hast patience and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. It is important that we in the body of Christ are overcomers and that we understand the secret of overcoming being bewitched into mere religious duty like the Ephesian church. Because the next step is our own self-initiations individually and corporately to do it our way and to have a hierarchy of control. And we know over and over throughout history, this has been the pattern from the very beginning of time. God initially raises up leadership, such as, for example, Moses, Moses spent the first 40 years being raised to be a king and a leader over Egypt. We know the story. Then he believed that God was raising him to use him to deliver his people and attempts out of his own self-initiation to bring it to pass by killing the slave driver over this Jewish man. He's discovered and he flees. And so the next 40 years, he's in the wilderness until he's 80 years old. And, and all the pride and the self is broken in him as he prays and he seeks God. And he doesn't 
see anything coming of him being that great deliverer. And then God appears to him because he's still seeking God and commands him to go to Egypt. And now he doesn't even want to go because he doesn't have any pride, laughter, desire, self-glory. But God sends him in the last 80 years from the age 80 to 160. He is leading the children of Israel through the wilderness. Not the next 80 years, I should say the next 40 years till 120. And powerfully used of God. God raised Moses up. He made him a leader. He visited him and sanctioned him as a leader over Israel. But the basic principle that we observe throughout church history, throughout the history of Israel, and is a basic principle from the very beginning, is that eventually there are leaders that are not raised up by God. As happened to the nation of Israel, kings with self-seeking motives were raised up. We see examples of that, like in King David, that was raised up of God, that did not seek to be king, that actually sought to keep himself away from being king, that did not try to initiate anything to be in a position of leadership because he only desired relationship with God and only sought the glory of God. And King Saul, who was chosen but became proud, fell into the deception of pride and persecuted though King David, who was then going to take his place. But we see that there is this basic principle that various kings and leaders were, came into position in Israel when Israel turned away from God that were controlling and very oppressive. And that only caused greater pressure to bring eventually a birthing within that hierarchical structure of a remnant that cried out to God and delivered them. And that hardness, that outward hardness of control corporately was shattered with the judgment of God. And again, you see revival and leadership raised up of God. The same pattern is seen throughout church history. You have the early church in the beginning, pure and doing the mighty works of God, where the leadership is raised up of God. And then as time goes on, a hierarchy forms of control and a greater and greater clergy laity gap instead of being the corporate body of Christ. And we see the Catholic Church oppressing and controlling. And then we have the Protestant Reformation. And out of that, there's new movements that are birthed, that are raised up supernaturally of God, where the leadership is supernaturally anointed and raised up of God. But in time, they become denominations and hierarchical shells of control that form a hierarchy of security around a particular truth that is emphasized that has been restored, but eventually it's not out of revelation or relationship with God. It's more out of just being passed on to, to the third and later generations becomes merely more intellectual and less out of relationship with God. And so they are threatened by another truth and another revelation and those that would in any way undo their comfortable shell. But this is like a seed that has a shell, but it breaks forth. And as it grows, there's a shock that forms, which represents another shell. 
But then within that shuck, the pressures of that shell cause it to unfold again into greater maturity to eventually, there's so many unfoldings that it finally has the beauty of the corn glowing in the sun, ready to be reaped, which speaks of the corporate body of Christ coming forth as that bride without spot or wrinkle in the last days that is open to the whole counsel of God that casts off the control of denominationalism and of all those things that are of man. It comes before God in a relationship of being his corporate bride. And that is what is signified in the Feast of Tabernacles, is God's ultimate purpose to bring forth a corporate bride that will reflect his glory upon the earth and bring in the end-time harvest to enter into that corporate bride in enlargement of multitudes that quickly come into maturity because of the purity that is in that corporate gathering of believers. This is God's strategy and plan for the last days. And I want to emphasize more the secret of entering into such a relationship that undoes the tendency in the human heart to fall into mere religious duty like the Church of Ephesus. I'm wanting to first emphasize an illustration with the Church of Ephesus that lost their first love and ended up being occupied with much religious activity and a love and a zeal for truth, but without relationship with God. The Holy Spirit gave me a, a, an understanding of this many, many years ago, and so I have given this illustration probably a good number of times now. But Ephesus was a port city a port city that had a very deep port and was prosperous because of the deep port they had that allowed for trade and commerce and ships to come in. But the hills around Ephesus were filled with forest, and as time went on, those trees were used up to build various structures and so on and were not replaced with other trees. So as time went on, there was erosion of the soil from the hills into the port so that eventually over time the port became shallow to the point that today it is seven miles away from the city of Ephesus and of course useless for it to be a prosperous city. It has no depth or capabilities of fruitfulness because it became shallow. And this is an illustration of how the, there is the subtlety of erosion individually in our lives and corporately to fall out of relationship of the first love with God. The trees that grow on the hills speak of the blessings that God brings to those that have come into a vital and deep relationship with him where Leadership has been raised up corporately that has been used mightily to bring forth truth and so on. And it speaks of the blessings in our lives individually, like God brought to Abraham and the fact that Isaac was brought forth. And yet Abraham went great through great trials of testing of his faith, where it seemed even that God was against him. And yet out of it, there still came forth Isaac, which speaks of truths and revelations that we have as 
in our own lives, a breakthrough and that corporately we have. But then what does God ask Abraham to do? He asks him to offer up Isaac, the very one that he had gone through such tra trials to receive as a blessing unto God and the world. And he has the faith to actually obey God and offer his own dear precious son and put the knife in because he believes in God's goodness to actually raise his son from the dead. So likewise, God challenges us when he gives us through revival and through entering into a genuine birth experience with Christ, great blessings, and into the baptism of the Holy Spirit, great blessings. And then out of that comes fruitfulness in our lives. But he asks us to always be in a place, in a relationship with him, where when we reap those blessings, like the trees being reaped to build homes and habitation, and we reap the blessings of habitation with God and with people being brought into our lives and so on, that we be in a place and relationship with God where we never allow the ground to become hard and shallow. But when we receive these blessings, we know the secret of breaking up the hardness and the tendency of hardness in the ground to plant new seed so that the, there is an ongoing relationship of intimacy with God in the first love relationship rather than a shallowness that comes into our lives and a hardness that over time erodes our relationship with God individually and corporately to the place that we no longer are genuinely the corporate bride of Christ or individually his children but have become apostate and deceived by being filled with all of our own ways of religious ritualism and busyness that has replaced relationship with God. God is calling us as his people to learn the secret. There's a verse, and there's a song to the verse. Maybe I'll just try to quote it. It says... It is time to seek the Lord and to break up the fallow ground. Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain shall be brought low and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. It goes like this. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. And every mountain and hill shall be brought low. And the crooked shall be made straight. And the rough way shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, 
for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains mercy on you. And I won't repeat it. God is calling us to enter into relationship with him in such a way that no fall of ground is allowed to continue corporately. The, the spirit of denominationalism is broken corporately. The spirit of control is broken. And the body of Christ can come forth to function as God has called it to come forth and function. That can only be a reality when we also individually come into a first love relationship with God. King David expressed his love relationship with God like this. There's a song and it goes like this. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Yes, that is expressing a love relationship with God. The beauty of the Lord, desiring to behold the beauty of the Lord. The beauty of the Lord, how does that come? It comes out of the holiness of God, out of loving the holiness of God. And out of loving the holiness of God comes wholeness. Wholeness in our being. And the revelation of the wholeness in God. And it is out of the revelation of the wholeness in God that there is the revelation of the beauty of God which brings forth the glory of God. This is an expression of reciprocative love relationship with the very being of God that King David is expressing. This relationship, the secret of it is in the fear of God. And so in sharing this passage of scripture in Galatians 3 and 2 Corinthians 12, to come into tabernacling with God individually and corporately, I want to emphasize the secret of the fear of God. It is in a choice to recognize God for who he truly is from our heart. 
that involves also a deep turning in the heart and that very recognition of who God is. So who is God? God is love. That is very clear from 1 John. This is a love that always, and I could go into detail to describe the being of God, but for time here, I cannot do that. But God's being of love is a quality that freely chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate good. And he is always choosing the highest lasting good onto ultimate good who is himself that is always enlarging in love. Part of that enlargement involved his choice to choose to have a corporate bride that would involve his condescension to humble himself more than you, a mere creature, and suffer more than you, a mere creature, so that you could be reconciled to God and become part of his corporate bride by repenting and receiving his atoning work of sacrifice for sin on the cross for you, receiving his blood that was shed to cleanse your soul white as snow and asking for him to cleanse you and to forgive you of all your sins. The being of God's love that always chooses the highest lasting good as such has integrity and ultimate purity so that it is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that would be contrary to such love, to his love. God's love is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary to his love or less than his love. This is the holiness of God. This is the defensive aspect of the being of God. And only as such can God contain unlimited life and unlimited power without it dissipating or being corrupted by it, which points to him being the very source thereof. In other words, he is holding unlimited power and unlimited life in ultimate goodness because there's no corruption that is within this unlimited power and life that allows it to be a foundation out of holiness to always enlarge in greater and greater creativity that is without corruption. The understanding of us having our own free will and having corruption in us because there is a potential in free will to make wrong choice is another topic that for time cannot be covered here. When we recognize God as such, we are recognizing the quality that only can be ultimately trustworthy. And therefore, there is a recognition of God as ultimately trustworthy. How does that happen? When we choose to fear God and recognize God in his holiness, out of which springs the capacity in his being to be so pure, so as to be able to become a perfect atoning sacrifice and suffer more than us mere creatures and humble himself more than us mere creatures, so that we can be reconciled to God. That capacity was recognized from the very beginning of time. In fact, in Galatians 3 here, Paul makes it clear that the gospel was preached to Abraham. It was preached from the very beginning of time. It was the recognition of who God is, that he had out of this foundation of his holiness such a purity of love that he had the capacity to be a perfect atoning sacrifice. And it is very emphasized in the Old Testament that only God has the power to forgive sin. 
And that implies that he must therefore have in him such a moral capacity since an animal was recognized not to be able to cleanse the soul and the spirit from sin, but only the physical, as mentioned in Hebrews and also implied clearly in the Old Testament in various places. And that cleansing of the physical allowed the Spirit of God to dwell with them so that they experienced out of that dwelling a relationship with God, but they could not have the indwelling until after, as Christ said, you know him for he dwells with you and shall be in you. And so I can't go into all the details of in this message of how they were born again of the Spirit. But I want to emphasize this, that out of the fear of God, out of choosing to recognize God in the purity of his holiness, recognizing the goodness that is behind that holiness from our heart and out of that, we recognize the greatness of God's mercy to us. For if we do not fear God, we will never recognize the greatness of his mercy to us personally. And it is only out of the recognition of the mercy of God that there can be the recognition of the love of God in integrity that can be transcended in mercy with the power to forgive. And it is that that is focused in the atoning work of Jesus Christ who is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when we see the greatness of God's mercy through a deep turning in our heart, our soul and our spirit reaches out to that mercy in which we see the love of God and recognize the ultimate trustworthiness of God, which could only be recognized in the fact that God can assure destiny to his creation. If he could not, it would imply that he created a creation without purpose and was himself imperfect. But in the recognition of this love, there is a reaching out of our spirit in faith, in a state of selflessness, turning away from self to God, represented in a clenched fist, becoming an open hand, in which then we receive the Spirit of God to dwell with us in the Old Testament and to indwell us in the New. And so the Spirit of God can represent the other hand coming against the open hand, representing our soul in a state of selfless trust. And therein we have the symbol of two hands in prayer and the symbol of a seed, which represents the new divine nature, which is discussed in First John that says, whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Yes, the new divine nature is our spirit in a state of selfless trust, held in that state of selfless trust by the Spirit of God in a new divine nature. And that was the case from the time of Adam and Eve to now that people experienced being born of the Spirit by that happening. And this is the secret to breaking up the follow ground and undoing a state of pride that can so subtly enter into our being. As Paul the Apostle, as I said earlier, emphasized that we should be rooted and grounded by that Christ should dwell in our hearts by faith, that we might be rooted and grounded in love. It is by faith by opening our spirit and soul and faith towards the recognition of the greatness of God's mercy to us and his grace to us, that there is the reciprocation of his love as described in Galatians, in which the Apostle Paul says that faith works by love. 
Therein we come before God. And what I want to say in closing here is this. God is calling us to come forth, not only to know his dwelling in us individually, by circumcising our hearts daily, by coming before him and being awe and learning to wait on him and spend quality time in prayer, not allow the things and the activities of this world to quench our thirst for God and to take us away from abiding times of fellowship with God, but also corporately. God is calling his people to forget about the pre-service prayer meetings and make the church. Start your church services on your faces, on your knees, and utter awe of God, in the fear of God, in humility, humbling yourselves, being still and knowing his God, sensing when he's rising in you with praise out of revelation that comes out of that humility. Then you will come forth in great joy and liberty in this spirit of prophecy and praise that is pure before God as his corporate bride, as his spirit blows upon the members of the body. Paul the Apostle said this. He, he said concerning the early church that God has tempered the body together in such a way that he has given more abundant honor unto the part that lacks, that there should be no schism in the body of Christ. And what this verse means is this. It means that when the spirit of control is broken and we're in humility before God, that those that tend to be looked up to are brought down like the mountains and those that tend to be dejected can be brought up. It means that there is the freedom for each member to share as the spirit of God moves on them, to move in the gifts of the spirit and to express their love to God before the convert conversation and a testimony or a new song or whatever way it happens. And what happens then is God will gift someone that is not looked up to in the natural as someone that is so charismatic or attractive. Even the Paul the Apostle in this passage in 2 Corinthians didn't seem to be attractive to them because he so represented the name of God that the old nature in them that tended to want to identify in those things that are of man and his name was opposed to that. So he tended to be rejected the more he loved them. But what God is saying in that passage in Corinthians is this, that when there's no control and the leadership allows the body to function freely in the gifts and allows God to come down, that he pours more abundant honor on the part that lacks because those that lack don't tend to be looked up to. And they tend to humble those that tend to be like mountains and looked up to. And so what happens is pride is broken. The word of God says in Proverbs, that contention or division comes by pride. And so pride is broken. The mountains are brought down, the valleys are raised up, and now we're more conscious of Christ walking in our midst than the leadership. That doesn't mean there isn't leadership. The leadership should always point people to the glory of God. And when this happens, you have the receptivity corporately to be truly gathered in his name so that the greater works can be released in your midst with the glory of God coming in your midst. God is calling his people to come forth into this new order under the full headship of Christ in preparation to conquer their communities, their cities, and their nations for the coming of God is drawing near and judgment is merely a short time away on the horizon 
We see all the evidence that Russia and China are getting ready to plan a major attack on North America. They've already been attacking with computers in many other ways. Let us be those that in the time of great shaking are found in such a relationship with God that we know his tabernacle among us so that in the time of trouble, as King David said, he will be with me because I delight to be in his dwelling place and to behold his beauty. God bless you all for listening to this message. May you enter into the reality of it. I look forward to continuing to share with you. Thank you.